Welcome to New City Online. I'm Ron, the online pastor, and today I'm super excited about this service. We have Gabe Smith, one of our executive pastors. He's preaching and sharing some of his story, and we'll have the opportunity to take communion together as a church family at the end of the service. So as you have time, go ahead and gather some bread or crackers and juice and prepare those elements for later on today. And if it's your first time joining us at New City Online, we're so glad you're here. And we'd love to know you're tuning in. You can go to newcity.us connect, fill the form out there, and as a way to say thanks for connecting, I'll drop you a Starbucks gift card in the mail this week. This past week, I read a quote that really stood out to me. It said, maybe the greatest benefit of generosity is the realization that we already have enough. But do we really believe that? Do we believe that God has already given us enough? In 1 Peter 1, the Apostle Peter writes, By His divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. God promises to provide for all of our needs, but so often that's something that I know I forget. Also, if I'm honest, I'd like for Him to provide for more than my needs, but my wants too. That's why giving and generosity is so important. It's about trust. Trusting God to provide. If you'd like to take that step and give today to the work of New City, you can do so at newcity.us give. Now let's continue to worship together.
Lord, thank you. Just thank you for always accepting us back, no matter how horribly we feel or how um, wrongly we've screwed up. God, you always, uh, you just take us back so willingly, so openly. There's never a question. You just, you just do it. And it's amazing. There's something we can never comprehend or understand, God. We thank you so, so deeply, Lord. I pray that you bless today, you bless the service, bless each and every person that is listening to the words that I'm saying right now, God. Just bless today, in Jesus' name, amen. This is a story Jesus told. It comes from Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 through 35. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Well, four years ago, um, I was at the end of my rope. I was turning 40. Um, I'd been married 16 years. I had a nine-year-old daughter, and I'd been living and working in South Africa, where I had built a ministry and was, was leading a ministry. And um, the way I would describe my life at that point is I felt like I was on a tiny raft in a big ocean, adrift and rudderless. And that was a brand new experience for me in adult life. I'd never experienced that before. Um, and on the outside, things looked really good. Uh, I looked healthy, uh, had been faithful in marriage. The, the ministry was going well. We were meeting our goals. My daughter was thriving. But beneath the surface, I was not well at all. Uh, the work was difficult. People were difficult. But more than that, I was drained, completely drained. Um, and it was starting to show. Uh, I felt very far from God. And I couldn't remember the last time that I had felt joy of any kind. And I couldn't see beyond the next day or the next week or the next month. And, and that was a new experience for me, too, because I've always been a person with a lot of vision of, of the ability to see the next things. And, and I couldn't because my vision was just narrowed to this super myopic level. And my own sad, small story was the only thing in view at that time. And you know, if, if life has seasons, what I can say is this was definitively winter. You know, winter is the time uh, when the earth is furthest away from the sun. It's the season where things die. It's, it's marked by bone-deep cold. And on the outside, um, the sun was shining in my life, but on the inside, it was winter, and I was numb, and I felt the life draining out of me. Maybe some of you can resonate with the story um, that I'm sharing. Maybe some of you right now are acutely aware that you, too, are living in winter. Maybe you feel the cold pangs of death in a definitive way. You feel viscerally that things are not as they should be. Um, for you, maybe this is a season that is marked by pain, um, by death of a loved one, by loss of a job, by the dying of a dream by the withering of a certain relationship. Or, or maybe for you, your smaller story is actually going okay. Uh, but you see the larger world 
uh, when you tune into the news, when you read the paper, when you look all around you and you see all the heartache and despair and injustice and violence and hatred of everything around us in our society, in our culture, and you know that this is not the way things are supposed to be, and everything in you longs for something different. Maybe you find yourself consumed by politics, by culture wars, by fears of all kinds. Maybe it's a fear that the life that you've built might not survive your lifetime. Well, if this is where you are, if, if, if maybe you're trapped in your small story like I was because of the events and circumstances of your life, or, or maybe it's just because you're so consumed by the destruction and frailty of the world around us um, that you feel like you're living in winter, here's what I want you to know is that you aren't alone. Um, in fact, there is a reality that it's been winter for a very, very long time. You know, when we're preaching and teaching the scriptures, one of the things I think is most important is that we constantly look at the big story. Did you know that the scriptures tell us one cohesive story? It's one story that God is, is writing and telling, and, and the scriptures teach us that our stories, our smaller stories and the smaller story of our culture and the world around us happen in the context of this bigger story that God is writing um, and it's a beautiful story, and, and, and you've heard it before, but I want to tell it in the context of, of seasons. You know, in, in the beginning, the scriptures tell us that there was this endless spring. If spring is the opposite of winter, if spring is a, a, a time where life is blooming and things are growing, um, everything was right in the beginning, in this endless spring when God made the earth, and it was perfect, and it was beautiful, and it was everything that we long for. But then there was a darkness that entered in when, when we chose to live life according to our own terms, and the spring became winter, and, and love grew cold, and the relationship between God and man was broken, and the creation was broken, and all of a sudden the world and life in it were defined by brokenness and death. That spring became winter, cold and dark and numb, and only glimpses of that previous perfection survived. And, and it was that way for, for a very, very long time. But, but God kept breaking into the story. And, and then at a moment, the sun appeared into that cold and dark and numb and broken world. And, and, and one of the men who walked with Jesus named John wrote the story and said it this way. He said, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus was the sun, the light of the world. And so God entered the winter and the very brightness and the life and the radiance that made that perfect endless summer in the beginning broke into the darkness. And the way that Jesus after he broke in, dealt with people is so beautiful um, because he actually didn't start a big ministry. He, he picked 12 guys, 12 ordinary people, and he called them out of their ordinary lives to, to journey with them for three years. And in those years, they experienced a, a deeper glimpse of what life would look like when winter was finally over. You know, they got to see the dead come to life they got to see the sick healed, the marginalized lifted up, the powerful 
became weak and the desperate became hopeful. And, and the 12 friends, as they experienced all of these things, as you can imagine, uh, thought that spring was coming quickly, that the sun was here, the Messiah was here, and that the winter was coming quickly to an end. Well, after three years of following Jesus, the, the 12 friends went with him to Jerusalem, and which was the city of God, which was central to their story, to their worldview. It was a city of promise. It was, it was God's city. Um, it was the place where he would eventually rule and reign the world. And Jesus, as they probably expected, entered the city like a king. Um, and as you're following along in the scriptures this morning, this is earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, we see this triumphant entry of Jesus like a king into the city. And at that moment, if you can just step into their shoes and imagine, um, at that moment, they're probably like, yes, this is it. Um, everything wrong is about to be made right. They, they believed, I'm sure, that he was about to ascend to power, that the winter was about to end, that all the injustice um, was, was about to be undone. And, and then they, it says they go with him to the temple. And, and if Jerusalem is the city of God, it, the center of the city is this hilltop, and it, it's central to, to God's story throughout the scriptures. And the temple is this majestic stone building that had recently actually been rebuilt by Herod. And it's made up of these massive stones. And I'm not talking about like the, the bricks on your house. Like these are stones the size of your house um, that this temple is made up of. And, and for them, you see this temple, it was the ultimate symbol of spring. It was the ultimate symbol because it was the place where God actually dwelled. Um, and this would be the place where Jesus would rule. And so they, they walked out of the temple and they marveled at the grandeur of this building. Let's just stop for a second and imagine. It's kind of a funny scene because here's, here's Jesus um, walking out of, the, out of the temple and the disciples actually start pointing out how amazing these buildings are to Jesus. It's kind of funny, actually. Um, and because this was their symbol of hope. And um, this is the one thing that they could look at, that regardless of the difficulties in their own stories or the stories of the world playing out around them, they would be assured that the, in the end, things would work out in their favor. Um, so they walk out of, of the temple. And I want to also point out, this is an important moment in the scriptures, kind of in the bigger story, because this is actually, as Jesus leaves the temple, this is the last time that God is in the temple. As he walks out, Jesus sort of ends his public life, and, and he actually, his presence and God's presence leave the temple at that time, which was actually prophesied in the book of Ezekiel that, um, that the, the presence of God would actually leave the temple and that it would uh, move to a hillside to the east of the city. And so that's exactly what happens. Jesus and the disciples leave the temple as they're kind of pointing out these buildings. Look how amazing these buildings are. These are incredible. And they get up on the Mount of Olives, this hillside that overlooks Jerusalem. And, um, and then Jesus says something that really shook them to their core. He says, uh, you... You, you see all these, do you not? Kind of pointing to the temple buildings. Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
so he says this, this temple that they look at as you know, the symbol of their hope will be destroyed, and they're stunned. And so um, on this hillside, the disciples come to him, and they ask him a really important question. They say, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So two questions in one. Uh, first, tell us when these things will be, um, asking about the, the temple and, and the destruction and um, all these things. And then what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So kind of a big, big question for an afternoon conversation. And I imagine that they're kind of sitting on this hillside and contemplating his words. And you can imagine what they're feeling, like completely undone. Their worldview is completely undone at this point. Their hope is draining out, I would imagine, um, because they think things are about to be made right. And Jesus says that is not the case. Um, well, Jesus' reply to this complicated question, as you can imagine, is also very complicated. And I just want to spend a few minutes unpacking it. And this might be a point where if this, is, if this sermon is interesting to you, and maybe later you want to go back and, and study this for yourself, I would, I would really advise you to, to go back and look into these passages um, more deeply. But I'm going to kind of cover them um, pretty quickly here, just to give you some context uh, for what's going on. So in verses 4 through 13 in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus tells the disciples in an answer um, to, to their question about events that will happen in their lifetime. Um, so he says things like, there's going to be false Christ, that uh, there's going to be people that claim to be him and aren't going to be him, that there's going to be all kinds of violence, there's going to be wars of all kinds, there's going to be like kingdom against kingdom, like the powers of the world are going to be in an epic battle against each other, and there's going to be a world that's marked by violence. He also says um, natural disasters will continue. Um, you'll have earthquakes and floods and all these sorts of things. Um, and then even worse, in these verses, Jesus tells the disciples that they themselves will be put to death and that uh, all the followers of Jesus will be hated and that there'll be increasing lawlessness and that because of all these terrible circumstances, many people's love will grow cold and reject the faith because of all these things. So block one, he answers, in your lifetime, these things are going to happen. Um, pretty terrible news, not the news they expect. And then in verses 15 through 28, Jesus tells them specifically about the destruction of the temple. Um, and this was something that had been prophesied about uh, by the prophet Daniel many hundreds of years before. And this particular event, we know because we're looking back on the story historically, uh, happens in 70 AD when the Romans actually come in and the army destroys Jerusalem and the temple. And they actually like pull these giant stones off of the walls of the temple. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you can actually see them. They haven't been moved. They're that big. Um, some of the stones are still like falling over um, on themselves. And so he says, in your lifetime, these things are happening. In your lifetime, this temple that you're like, you know, in awe of today will, will eventually be destroyed. And, and then finally, in verses 29 through 31, Jesus repeats the words of ancient prophets. Um, and there's different versions of this, but basically Ezekiel and Isaiah and Joel and Amos all kind of say the same thing. And verses 29 through 31 are, are really kind of a copy-paste um, from these ancient um, prophets. 
Um, And he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So he tells them, here's the things that are happening in your lifetime. Here's what's going to happen in 70 AD with the temple. And here's this event that's going to be like the most epic, amazing event in the history of the world that's going to happen. And of course, we know that did not happen in their lifetime. And he actually says that no one except the Father, not even the Son, knows um, when he's going to come back. And those verses 29 through 31 are talking about uh, the second coming of Christ that we're actually still waiting for too. Um, here's, I just want to point out a couple of things that are important to the, to the story here, because remember, they're in winter, uh, a season of death and destruction, violence and despair. And until this day, they thought spring was right around the corner. And then he tells them, you're going to die, you're going to suffer, the temple is going to be destroyed, an incredible amount of heavy stuff. And then he says, But when I return, which no one knows when that's going to be, it's going to be this epic event. It's not going to be a private event. I'm not going to show up in a back room somewhere or, you know, in a hidden way. I'm going to come in a way that the whole earth will be aware of. And so there's two important things. First of all, Jesus, when he returns, he will not return to keep bad things from happening to his friends. That's a tough teaching. He will not return to keep bad things from happening to his friends. He tells them, really, really bad things are going to happen to you guys in your lifetime. They will actually suffer and die for his sake. And number two, his coming will not be in secret. When he comes, the whole world will, will know it. And I know some of you, you know, may be interested in end times things. And I know in our culture, there's a lot of teaching and talk about, um, you know, reading the signs of the times and, and all that. And I think this is an important passage because it says to the disciples, hey, and your, bad things are going to happen in your lifetime and bad things are going to continue to happen. Um, and then when I come back, and no one can predict when that would be, um, it, it won't be to, to keep bad things from happening, but also it won't be a secret when I return. Um, that is a lot of teaching, right? That's a lot for all of us to consume. And Jesus was, of course, the most amazing teacher ever on, to, to be on the planet Earth, Right? Um, and he's also incredibly kind to his friends. And so he ends all of that teaching um, about how winter is going to end, about how spring is going to come in with this story. And it's the story of the fig tree. And he says in uh, verse 32, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. So I imagine when I think about this story, um, that they're on this hillside. They're actually under a fig tree, most likely, and Jesus is like grabbing a, a, a fig tree, a branch or a leaf, and he says, from this fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so at the fig tree, Jesus is like sort of summarizing all these teachings about the things that are going to happen in in their lifetime um, and the things that will happen after their lifetime. 
and he knows it's going to be incredibly hard. And in his kindness, he gives them something to hold on to. And I imagine he knows that they're going to come back to this fig tree, that they're going to see it again, and that they're going to remember in the midst of the life that is to come that's going to be really, really challenging and really, really hard, that they can look at this fig tree and remember that, you know, when, when the leaves start to come out um, and the season is, is changing, um, you remember that this isn't forever. And there's something interesting about a fig tree is that it's one of the only plants uh, that loses its leaves in the, in the Middle East in the space of Jerusalem in the wintertime. And so it's one of the only plants that you can look at and see this changing of the season. And I think as he's talking to the disciples, he's telling them, look, winter is here, but a new season is coming. Be faithful, endure, um, continue to preach the truth. The truth of Jesus will outlast the world, verse 35. You see, the lesson of the fig tree gives us two things. First, it gives us a context for discipleship that the, the season of death and destruction and difficulty marked the, the journey of the disciples with Jesus. And, and to be honest, that marks our journey as well. And the second thing is the fig tree points to the, the commitment um, to Jesus that the disciples should not allow the adverse conditions of the world around them um, to lead them into a place of, of eternal winter and despair. But instead, they ought to look at that fig tree and have hope hope that spring is coming, hope that Jesus will return, that he will one day make all things new, and that their endurance will matter in the end. You know, from where we sit today, uh, the things that Jesus describes are very much part of our stories too, right? Um, Some of those things that started happening in the first century following um, the resurrection, you know, the violence and the suffering and the death Um, and destruction really mark our world too, don't they? Um, And and maybe that's not your personal experience, but for most of the world, that that is the current experience of the world. And there's a second reality that the gospel of the kingdom has gone out into the world, that those disciples were faithful, even in the context of death. They stayed faithful to preach the gospel, and so we get to be beneficiaries of that today. Um, They were simple men from a small tribe, but they endured in that painful context, and their commitment to Jesus was incredibly radical. Um, Today, I want to, you know, I want to remind us that uh, we shouldn't expect something different than the disciples expected, that the power of the fig tree to be this tangible reminder right now, something that I can touch and feel reminds us of this bigger story that God is writing, that though we are tempted to be drawn into our smaller stories of winter, whether that's in our personal life or the life of our culture around us, that um, Jesus gives us this reminder in this tangible way with this fig tree and reminds us that our story is part of a bigger story and that though our context is difficult, um, that our commitment to him will be rewarded and that he will one day return to make all things new, that he will one day return physically. And, and I don't think we think about that a lot in our culture, but did you know that? That Jesus will return physically and make all things new. The end of the story is not us going to heaven, but heaven coming to earth and making all things new. And did you know that the world, along with all of our circumstances, your circumstances and mine, that they're all passing away? 
one day, that we don't know when Jesus is returning, but we know that he will. And this ought to be a sobering and encouraging reminder to us. You know, that's a lot of theology. That's a lot of teaching. Maybe for you, that's a story that's out here, but you're in your personal winter right now, and you're hurting and you're in pain, or maybe you're just distracted by the pain of those around you. Um, You know, my story when I was adrift and rudderless, like a little raft in a big ocean four years ago, um, I want to tell you how that story ended. And it was beautiful because the Lord gave me a fig tree. He gave me a tangible reminder of his presence. I was in Jerusalem and um, kind of at the end of that four years, I was invited to go to this conference. And so I went because who doesn't want to go to a conference in Jerusalem, right? Um, So I go there, I'm doing this conference, and we had a chance to tour around a little bit. And then on the last day, it was a Friday, which if you know about Jewish culture and history, that's the beginning of their their Sabbath. And they take it seriously, like the whole city starts to shut down before nighttime on on Friday. And on Friday afternoon, everyone in our conference was gathered on the southern steps of of the temple, which, you know, the temple was, of course, destroyed, but the first five steps on the southern side of the temple are original. Can you imagine that? Original, meaning the steps that Jesus walked up, the steps that he walked down as he left the temple for the last time were still there, and I got to sit on those steps. And I remember sitting on those steps, and and it was this amazing moment because, remember, I was in this place of despair in my life, and I'm sitting on these steps that Jesus had walked on, and behind me is the ruins of the temple, and as I look off to my left, you can see the crest of of the Mount of of Olives, the Kidron Valley. Um, And all at once, sort of this big story that God is writing became very real to me. Jesus became very real to me in that moment. And I realized that um, he really did come, that he really did walk with these 12, that he really did die, that he really did um, raise from the dead, and that he really is coming again. And, And all at once, my small story made since. And I, I left that place and I was walking with two friends we, as we were leaving and going back to our hotel. One was Canadian, one was South African. And, and one of the strangest moments in my life, we ended up being the only ones on this narrow street in the old city of Jerusalem, leaving that moment. And my heart was, was burning because I had experienced the presence of Jesus and been reminded of his presence and his promises to me. And as we were walking down this narrow road, uh, coming towards us from the other direction was an old man uh, with a cane walking very slowly and a woman carrying a loaf of bread. And as they walked towards us, we, we kind of prepared to just kind of give, give them leeway and, and walk past. They stopped and they locked eyes with us. And the woman, without any words, started breaking off pieces of bread. And she started handing us these pieces of bread. And she said, it's the Sabbath. This is our tradition. Eat, eat. And they just like displayed this radical hospitality on the street right there. And the old man started a conversation with us. And he looked right at me. And he asked me a question I'll never forget. He said, son, are you a pilgrim? Son, are you a pilgrim? And he, he gave in that moment words to what I had felt sitting on the southern steps of the temple, that that word pilgrim, one on a journey, one along the way, all of a sudden defined what it meant for me to follow Jesus. That, that yes, I was in a difficult place in my life, but yes, Jesus is real, and, and that he invites me to journey with him. And when he said that, I said, yes, I'm a pilgrim. 
And, uh, and, then, and then, you know, I'm having this incredibly visceral, emotional moment. And then he said something that shocked me. He said, well, then you have to get the pilgrim tattoo. And I said, what in the world are you talking about? He said, I, I own the oldest tattoo parlor in the world, and it's the tradition of Christian pilgrims for 800 years to get a tattoo on your right wrist um, to remember your pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to remember what you experienced. And he said, you come tomorrow, and, and, and I'll give you a tattoo. And um, I said, well, don't I need an appointment? And he said, don't worry about it. You're my friend. You come. And so I went back to my hotel room. My roommate, the uh, South African, was skeptical. He thought this guy was maybe <laughs> trying to con us or something. But I went and looked this guy up, and his name was Mr. Razook. And sure enough, he was all over the Internet. Um, he owns the oldest tattoo parlor in the world. His family has been tattooing Christian pilgrims to mark their journey for the last 800 years. And so that, that next morning, we got up and we went, and there was two or 300 people in line. And um, there he was, the old man, sitting on a stool in front of this shop carved out into the stone of the old wall of the city. And he jumped up and he said, my friend, you came. And he shoved me to the front of the line in front of these hundreds of people. And his son and grandson gave me the smallest tattoo in the world, the Pilgrim's tattoo, um, which I have. And for me, whatever you think about tattoos, for me, this is a fig tree. This is a tangible reminder that every morning when I wake up, every night when I go to bed, regardless of what's happening in my life, regardless of the winter that I'm living in, I look at and I remember that spring is coming. I remember that Jesus will come again. And I don't know where you are, friends, um, but I imagine some of you need a, a fig tree. You need a tangible, visceral reminder that Jesus loves you, that the winter will one day end, and that he's coming again to make all things new. And I just want to leave you with this question, is how much of your life do you spend trying to get to a different context, trying to get out of the winter, trying to get out of the difficulty, versus just, just moving into a different level of commitment, of seeing Jesus and seeing that despite where you are, he will meet you there and he will love you and he will give you hope and courage. To Christ be the glory. Amen. As Gabe preached us so clearly a few moments ago, we all have fig trees in our spiritual journey that point us back to Christ, that remind us of who and whose we are in Jesus. And communion is one of those fig trees. Communion affirms three things in the believer's life. First, it affirms Christ's love. The fact that we're even able to partake of this table through Jesus demonstrates the deep and the personal love that God has for you. Second, communion affirms that all the blessings of salvation are reserved for you. When we eat of this bread and, and drink of this cup, it's actually a foretaste of the great banquet of the King. As believers, we're members of his eternal family and our place is reserved at his table for all time. And finally, communion affirms our faith in Christ. By partaking of this table, we're saying, I need you and I trust you, Lord Jesus. Only by your broken body and shed blood can I be saved. So I invite you right now to take a few moments to reflect and to remember. Give thanks. And when you're ready, take the elements, the bread, representing Christ's body given for you, and the cup representing Christ's blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of him. This is the table of God for the people of God.
Thanks so much for worshiping with us today, New City. If you would, no matter where you are, extend your hands for a benediction as we go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you, turn his countenance to you and give you peace. Have a great week, New City.